Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Design Exec Club Spotlight. I'm here with Melissa Collins. Hi, Melissa. Hi. Now, Melissa, you're in the evening where you are. I'm obviously in the daytime. What part of the world are you in? I am in uh, Westchester, New York, which is about 30 minutes outside of New York City. Now, I've never asked you this, but wasn't one of the obnoxious characters out of MASH, wasn't he a doctor from Westchester? Oh, but I don't remember MASH. Okay. Oh, well, okay. So I, there's probably 10, maybe 15 years difference in our age. I got inflicted with MASH. You probably got Friends or Dawson's Creek <laughs> or something. Okay. So let's not, let's not get into soap operas and, and all that, but I'm pretty sure it's Westchester. I'm going to see if I can find a little name clip and put it in there. Okay. Um, we're going to have a conversation about better future and we're going to have a conversation about social justice, social equity, the idea that our economy might be stretched like an accordion to its limits and maybe we need to actually bring that in. The changes that have happened over the last 12 months where people have gone from being very me-focused into we-focused and then what that might look like as people are trying to actually define what a better future means to them. Um, for viewers who um, aren't familiar with Melissa, uh, Melissa and I met when she was in this awesome role with a company called Elevest. And Elevest were trying to solve how financial products worked for women. What really interests me was that they were trying to work out how do you actually build a financial products and investment strategies that dealt with the different cadence of, of, of women's advancement? You know, men, we kind of, we start work and we end work and that's it. But for most women, there's a interruption, which is called family. And that interruption then has a cycle change for them, which means that there's all sorts of issues there. Have I given that justice or have I just kind of mansplained something which is so much more difficult? Help me out. Well, you know, it's been a long time since I've been at Alabast. So um, what I can tell you about the, the experience in my house <laughs> is actually a pretty, a pretty equitable breakdown of labor. Um, and it's nice to be a part of a household where my partner and I work together on um making he's he's downstairs with our son right now um balancing balancing the workload and having different jobs to take care of the home but i am unusual in that circumstance and uh especially given the pandemic's uh experience for women i think with with slightly older children my son is too um having the kids at home to do at home schooling and just the nature of being the default parent. I think one of the things that can be particularly tricky is um, a lot of times mom's just the default. And I don't know how much of that is biology and how much of that is uh, experience, but as a, as a, if you're in a, a, um, a heterosexual relationship and there's a dad involved, um, dad has to pay a lot of attention to making sure that he doesn't let uh, mom be the default parent all the time and take on all of the responsibilities. So I'm lucky to be in a partnership where my husband is pretty active in his pursuit of taking on half of the labor because my my little boy would be just as, just as happy with mommy all the time. Yeah, and it's it's interesting where the that idea of the default thing and are you actually are you holding on too tight or, are, or is the person not actually offering the support? Very complex arrangements. I, most people know I'm an active sailor, a competitive sailor, and I've sailed on a boat 
after selling my, my boat. For, I've been on there for about four or five years with this skipper. And not once has he offered, would you like to have the tiller and would you like to actually sail away, even while we're transiting to and from. You know, it's his boat, it's his tiller, he holds on to it. And I'm going... Luckily, I don't have a problem with it. You know, so I don't think of him as being a hog, but it's there's something about it's not like, oh, yeah, somebody else sail the boat. And, and I can see that as having a correlation to the default parent thing that you've got without even thinking about it. We have behaviours that are in our life and they become very complex. And that's one of the things when we're trying to go think of social advancement, social inclusion, social equity, that we need to actually be aware of those. Uh, I think they used to come up and be called un- unconscious biases. Uh, I'm not sure if, if that's the most polite term because generally that came and meant that you're a bit of an arsehole, um, which is an Australian term for impolite. Um, and uh, and so from, from that perspective, that's complex because... I don't think people want to keep hold of the tiller all the time, but actually it's just a default position. And I wonder, you know, for how many families is there that the child might just love snuggling into mum um, and therefore there's a default position. It comes from where our families are brought up. Like there's so many issues there. When do you actually say, give me the child, give me that control, just stop, stop trying to have input here? Which is friction. And you're going, so are there other ways that you can try to go help with that don't have friction? And does that then lead to, well, you could have helped me out here. Well, I think what's lovely about um, the way that it works in, in our house is just that my husband tries to be conscientious of, and pay attention. So I don't find myself in a place of needing to do a lot of project management. Um, I don't need to ask him, oh, hey, did you notice that there's dishes piled up? Oh, hey, did you notice that there's garbage on that table? You know, he sees the garbage and he moves it to the garbage can because he's a human mm-hmm. being with eyes um, who can do that. Um, and and with Oscar, it is just a little different. Um, you know, Oscar's default is mama uh, and he goes through phases where it's mama and there will be phases where it's going to be data, I'm sure at some point in time and I'll have to relieve him of the child, but, um, he's pretty good to, to be conscientious of like, you know, Melissa looks a little tired right now. (laughs) Maybe I should take our son from physically climbing her person for a little bit and, uh, and find something. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to get us there to go through and have a look at, cause you, you've had a, a, a step change over the last couple of years, both from, going out and doing your own thing, which is awesome, starting your own studio, which is great because then I think when, although I reflect back to Elvis, that was a chapter where you've now branched out to be so much more than that. But in doing that, you've changed from playing the corporate ladder, I'm going to actually just try to bounce from role to role to role, and those values have changed. That insight's changed. Is that something which is uniquely you or is that uh, you're experiencing that across your friend group? Give us some insights. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I um, around this time last year, I was thinking about starting the company and I just was kind of curious if I could take some of the processes that that I had created to, to help the team through difficult moments at LFS to think differently about problems and apply them in a more broad, a broad perspective. And then, of course, we had the pandemic and, you know, nobody wants to start a business in the middle of the pandemic. So I opted out, um, waited a little bit longer until the end of the year. But 
throughout the course of the, of the, of the conversation with different folks in my life, I kept hearing kind of similar themes, which is just like, now that we aren't in a mode of constantly moving, we have an opportunity to evaluate. And I think this is true for everybody. I don't think this is just a female thing. What actually do we want to keep in our life? Um, and what do we want to nurture and what do we want to grow? And, and what, what were we, what were we working for? You know, what, where was all that effort meant to take us and, and what was kind of the objective and the outcome that we were searching for? You know, um, I don't know the, the national myth, uh, of Australia, but the national myth of America is kind of twofold. It's like based on Puritan work, work ethic, which is that work is godly, um, and doing more gets you closer to God and that that's kind of your purpose on earth. And then you kind of like pour the capitalism fertilizer on top of that. And it just all of a sudden your purpose is your profession. And, uh, I just heard a lot of people over the last year really questioning that and saying, you know, maybe my purpose is bigger than just my job. And, um, I'm curious for you too, like what, with, with talking to so many designers, because we're purpose-driven people. That's why we got into the profession in the first place is, is we felt like there were problems worth solving. And we felt like our, our, our role in the world was to help ask good questions and to invent new solutions. And, um, Something else that I've found in in the tech industry in particular is that 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 curiosity can actually really be exploited um, because in a world where everything needs to grow at an exponential rate all the time and where so many companies are putting a, a mission based thesis inside of their DNA, you kind of have the worst of both worlds. You have this this kind of hyper growth expectation from uh, capital backing and then a mission which is which is never done. Um, plus a person who has uh, a national heritage myth that their work is their value. And so when all of that kind of screeched to a halt, I just had a lot of people in my life say, maybe we were wrong. Maybe there's a different way to live. Maybe there's other things. Maybe we can create a world where work is one part of a larger whole, mm -hmm. which, you know, I mean, how many times have we heard the idea of having it all? But I think the idea of having it all is more about continuing to have that high powered career and have all of the, um, I don't know. I don't even know quite how to put it. It's like all of the, you know, the possessions that, that demonstrate your status as well as be able to not feel guilty about being a bad, a bad partner or a bad parent. And, um, I think, I think we have an opportunity to really reimagine what success looks like and to support each other in journeys that, that enable us to pursue, our professional life, as well as, you know, our interpersonal pursuits. One of my good friends um, decided to write her novel this year uh, while she's working full-time as a design lead at Google. Um, another good friend decided to spin up and start her own business as a way to be, uh, be more flexible for her son who has special needs. So, you know, it's just been an interesting evolution watching, watching different friends of mine take the fallout of the last year. And we are extremely privileged people uh, who've been able to do this and, and really ask questions about where do we find value in our life and where do we, where do we really want to experience our joy? Um, and maybe it isn't in building somebody else's dream. And I think you're talking about something which is very easily summarized as it, we used to be focused about me 
and then the pandemic got us to go think about we. And here's a, a like I'm going to use a little prop here, so you can see there's the me, but on reflection, it turns into <laughs> we. Okay, so and uh, and and that's such an interesting thing that when we prior to the pandemic, our success we believed was our agency, our thing. It was about me. What am I going to do? My self-actualization. And now we understand that we actually have a bigger we consideration, which is I'm not safe if you're not safe. If you're exposed and if you're infected, I'm not safe. If your courier business doesn't work, my X coffee bean facial scrub business can't work. You know, it's like we we are we we haven't had just yeah. amplified to a degree, which is we are all connected and we are all in this together. And then when you're going out with friends and then you find out, well, a third of the friends aren't there because they're now in economic hardship and bread lines and food stamps are now part of their reality, whereas they seem to be so equal to the rest of us. It, it wakes you up and you go, how tenuous is, is the life that we've been living Yes. And we begin to say, well, how do we actually commune? How do we actually get that that common unity that we want to have with each other? And that community is actually so important to us. And, and the previous series of um, town halls that we did was about the term about unity. And uh, Dylan Brady, one of the architects in Melbourne, he came up with the idea of the common unity and the community. And you go, just awesome, you know, how words can help us go imagine things. So... So we've got this change that's gone on, and you're, you asked me the question about what do I see? Well, I, what I see is I see people who have actually begun to say, how do I actually affect the majority, not the minority? And so, so often design projects were actually for one percenters. We have this small percent of our marketplace. We need to adjust and change their experience because they're our high-yield people. Or, you know, it was, it was really very precise and what we're finding out is that there's challenges and the challenges are they're across the entire spectrum of the community if we can't work out how to get and toilet paper you know we found out right across the world that toilet paper is apparently a measure of how um how much panic people have in a panic people buy toilet paper in and you can say, well, there was a, an extreme state of anxiety at the beginning of the pandemic, and I think every country ran out of toilet paper in the in the first world. I'm not sure what happened in the in the developing nations. Um, they must be looking at all of us and saying, "You first world people are very strange." You know, a pandemic comes, and the first response you've got is buy more toilet paper and pasta is the other one. And and then we found out that supply chains are, have gone and. So really interesting thing for me, I, I bought a van so that I had a, a project to go work on and my van at the moment is off the road. I, I've got a, a fault in my exhaust manifold and you go, well, that must be quite easy to go source an exhaust manifold. Well, I wanted to go get a second-hand exhaust manifold which would come from a wrecker and the wrecker would break down an engine because they had too many of that model car that they had and then they'd break down the engine. But because there's been so many Australians who were expats who have come back to Australia, they're all buying second-hand vehicles, which means there's not as many second-hand vehicles going into auctions to go to wreckers. And because there aren't enough engines going into wreckers, therefore there's not excess of engines, which means that then the trickle-down effect of a broken-down engine that gives me my part just doesn't exist. And you go... How, yeah. did that, how did that happen? And you go, 
that gives us an idea of the new complexities that we have in our society. Now, is it is it life critical for me? Not really. It's an inconvenience. It's not life critical, but it's an observation of how things that we used to take for granted worked. The capacity to go get fresh coffee bean facial scrub delivered to you anywhere overnight, that was then people make businesses. That's really great. I've got this courier book. I, I you know, I just put in a, a code in their website, I print out a label and somebody comes and picks it up. I don't even know who that person is. They just walk in for five seconds, they pick it up and I have no idea of their context. Now we're finding out I, we probably needed to know who the pickup guy was or, or girl. We probably needed to understand where it went because now we have to solve the problems of our, of our logistics that are broken down. And we want to know our customers. We want to know they're doing okay and there's somebody who used to order all the time and they're not ordering. Can I send them something which is a, a care pack, which is I know you're on hard times, have one of our products. We've changed as people. We've changed our values and we've changed our focus. And... So the first wave is, how do you survive? And the next wave is, how do you thrive? And we need people to be thriving because then they can give a hand up to elevate the people who have survived. And unfortunately, there are some people who aren't going to survive. And they might, And as we know, there's mortality rates, but there's also people who aren't going to survive economically. Their businesses will be destroyed. You know, this has a generational impact in here. But that change in focus means that we then have new problems. And so I'm wondering, is that, are they the types of things that you're getting people to talk, uh, are talking to you about? Have they got new problems that need to be solved? Have they got a new focus about how they want to solve those problems? I think it's the new focus and, and I, it's very, it's very insular. And I think it's important to recognize that the, the women that I'm um, creating this little community with are all folks that have the capacity fiscally to have some freedom and flexibility in their choices, um, which is not something that a lot of women in the U S have, have found. We've certainly seen that the jobless rate for women, particularly black and Latinx women has been off the charts um, for for uh, the United States in the last year, and so I think we have you know an incredible reckoning to be had with um, making sure that that everybody has a way to earn a living coming forward in 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 twenty twenty one. But it it really is about kind of asking that question of like, well, what were our expectations before? And what was that thing that we were really all trying to achieve? And, you know, maybe we had our sights set on the wrong thing. And culture is such a powerful, um, powerful measuring stick for how well you're doing. And can we create a different culture? Can we create a different narrative where we're actually helping to support one another in our in our life pursuits and celebrate our life pursuits in the same way that we would celebrate um, the professional pursuits? And as I say that, you know, it makes me it makes me think too. Like, there's always been this commentary of like, when you're a woman, everybody asks you, especially if you're a married woman, when are you going to have a baby? And women who aren't do not have babies are often frustrated by that question because I made a company last year or I made this other amazing thing. And like, you know, nobody asks me when I was going to do that. You didn't expect it. You didn't even say I did a good job, you know. 
Um, and I, maybe that's part of why, too, I think a lot of this particular group of, of gals, um, we found ourselves in this place. We really wanted to prove ourselves. And we kind of got into this space and said, gosh, you know, uh, like maybe this isn't exactly what we were hoping um, to to have as an end result, which is just mostly being like really tired all the time and not terribly satisfied. So. Yeah, it's kind of, could you imagine if somebody told you, oh, when you start the family, you're going to be really tired all the time and probably not that satisfied. <laughs> it's not the greatest selling kit, but strangely, it seems to be the place that a lot of people find themselves post-child. It's like, oh, nobody told me. And, this, and, and they don't go away. There's no real relief. So, so. What I can hear is that you've actually created a tribe, a, a tribe like me, you know, that that you found some people who are having um, similar challenges, and that you've come together as a community, and you said, "Well, let's go and actually be a tribe like me." You're close enough to the challenges that I've got. There's diversity in there, but the diverse range is not going to be people who aren't like you. It's going to be people who are a bit more like you, so that you're then getting some reference and culture, uh, cultural uh, signatures there. But it's interesting how many people in that tribe had changed their focus from I'm going to break through with my career versus how do we actually all, all thrive together? And, and I'm, I'm interested if you know, that kind of is a signature between where you'd been, which was about me, and now it's actually about us. Well, it's a really good point. I love that frame. And I, um, I don't know that we're still in the early days of trying to figure out exactly why we're all talking to each other. But what's really interesting about it is that no one can stop. And so what, what I have, what I like, I am a person who tends to really love like a singular pursuit and a goal. And it has been a real struggle for me to fall out of a world where I feel like I know exactly where I'm headed. But this community has been this kind of interesting space to grow um, organically and watch where connections happen and watch where ideas form and it's just as simple as like developing um ways for us to talk about the things that we're super into and see if maybe business ideas come of that and to combine the talents in the group in new ways and think of a, a more kind of collective way of collaboration that isn't necessarily about creating an agency per se or you know, maybe not a new VC-backed startup, super cool, hyper-growth unicorn. Um, but we've had a lot of conversations around what is value. Mm-hmm. Um, Silicon Valley to date has focused mostly on the ability to grow. The 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 aphorism I always used to hate is like, have we figured out how to put a quarter in and get a dollar out? And it's like, that's just exploitation though. Like, it, like the, the other 75 cents has to come from somewhere. But that's that's actually an extraction economic model, not an additive economic model. Oh yeah. You've language to it, okay? And and so they're no different than a mining company. Where can we go find a a, a deposit of ore that we can go extract? We're not going to create value with it. We're going to actually go get a lease from the government, and that government will be from a very poor nation. We'll turn around and we'll give them cents in the dollar, but we'll be actually making a couple of dollars per per ton, and we're very happy. 
Dead on, dead on. And it's that's such an old business model. And all we've done is apply technology to it. And, you know, I was listening to Brian Collins's um, chat for the same series, and he was talking about something quite similar around terminology and language and how we call customers users on technological platforms. And it's so accurate. And uh, there's a new movement in Silicon Valley. Uh, well, I don't know if it's in Silicon Valley, but it's a new movement amongst, amongst um, entrepreneurs, which is asking, you know, about zebra companies. So instead of a unicorn company that it becomes a billion dollar company in a record amount of time, which, you know, why is that what we need? Like who benefits from that? Like there's a very small number of people that really benefit from that. What are the companies that are putting forward a, a growth metric that is based in, in offering value to customers and operating instead of um, off of an exploitation model, off off of a, a revenue creation model. So you know, people want to create to 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 participate in an organization based off of um, the value that it provides for them in their life, not necessarily its ability to to exploit vulnerabilities in the spreadsheet. And that's why I'm particularly impressed with uh, Logitech. So Logitech. Been around for a long time. Many people don't know. It's a company that started in Switzerland. And uh, and it started in Switzerland because when mice and keyboards came around, the early days of mice and keyboards, the Swiss were the people that you went and bought buttons from. Because it yeah. used to be, these days a keyboard is made out of membrane, but it, they used to have these buttons and they and they were called Hall Effect buttons and they had to have particular travel. And the Swiss actually were the people who said, we're going to make them. The French were also in that market, but the Swiss were just that bit better. And I remember going back into the 80s when I was sourcing buttons for to put on circuit boards. They were always Swiss. So the idea that a company that works out how to go make a clickable mouse and a, and a keyboard as accessories comes out from Switzerland makes sense. But that's a long, long time ago. And when their current CEO went in there, which I think might be seven and a half, eight years ago, Bracken Darrell, Bracken came in and he's, he realised that there wasn't a lot of growth in the company if they just stayed in keyboards and mice. And so he added things like speakers, Ultimate Ears is one of their brands, he had a video conferencing. I'm actually speaking to you now through a Logitech uh, camera. Um, sorry, you too? <laughs> okay, well, there you go, Bracken. You've got two sales there and two plugs. Um, and uh, so his world's changed now because he's, uh, he's got two customers. Actually, what he probably sells every day is two million of these things. So, um, But he, he went in and he worked out how to grow and how to evolve but also the model that he uses is the idea on that there's plants, there's trees, and there's forests. Yeah. And so that the innovation stands out as a little seed, which turns into a plant and a nursery. You have to look out of it. But eventually it becomes a forest. But you know what happens to forests? We cut them down. We extract from them. So he's still got the ethos that he needs to be able to extract, but we know that there's sustainable forestry and then there's unsustainable forestry. And for him to go run a company that keeps growing and growing, he has to have a sustainable forestry model as well as where are the new plants, where are the new, where are the new seedlings, where are the new trees coming from. And, it, and it's this additive process. He's high on social justice. He's high on, uh, on uh, the equity side. And I look at it and go, you feel like you're trying to add to society rather than just extract from society, which means he's not really a Silicon Valley sweetheart because a Silicon Valley sweetheart is 
that the capital has no morality. It's actually, so if the cause is that we're going to go give 1% of the company so that we can actually sell more equity, great. And what a lot of people don't understand is that a startup, the first thing they're selling is equity. They're not actually selling a service, okay? Nobody in a startup makes money until they sell the equity. And so, therefore, it's a real estate game. You know, we've got a 1,000 blocks of land. We have to sell the 1,000 blocks of land at most value. We do that by making it ever seem really appealing to people. That exit is such an important thing. And you'll see companies go through that exit phase and then they start to work out who they are. And I think WeWork is a good example of that. Yeah. WeWork was, you know, there was so much money that was poured into WeWork, which then created a, a non-profitable business model that was changing the way the commercial real estate worked. They got, they got through the IPO, which is the selling of the real estate, and now they're trying to work out, well, what is a sustainable and resilient product offering and company that, that we can put in the marketplace? So I, I'm a little surprised that we've gone into this conundrum because it, it's, you've got this issue where it's a type of applied capital and, a, and an extraction process, which so many of us have been drunk on for a long period of time because it's provided such incredible opportunities for people. But it also has, a, it's, it's got a problem, you know, because it's not adding, it's actually extracting. Well, it's not free for anybody involved. I mean, the, the WeWork thing is a fascinating um, my, like macrocosm of the, of the problem, right? Where, where the venture capital itself becomes almost a pyramid scheme. The bigger that the valuation becomes, the less possible it is to question the value. So the people who put in at the base don't want to lose all of the millions of dollars that are associated with their valuation, even though they know, even though they know that it won't work. And the, the more and more people that you get in, then you have kind of a culture shift towards just kind of looking away and acting like it's okay. And we don't, we all know that Adam Newman is, yeah. you know, not and ethical. I, I love Scott Galloway. You know, Scott Galloway is, and he's an investor in many, uh, many of uh, the companies that he goes and challenges. But Scott's perspective is, is this the right thing that we're doing for our society or is this just lazy? And I find that interesting. No, it's a really good point. And I think what, I, what I've learned too about the WeWork thing in particular is how many small, similar companies were unable to grow because of the tidal shift that WeWork created. WeWork became almost a moon in that space that attracted all of the funding. Mm -hmm. So if you had a different and far more profitable or functional business, you couldn't get funding for it in that space because people didn't want to miss out on WeWork. And before Eventbrite came into the market, I was running an event registration service here in Australia. It was highly profitable. We had the, the, you know, the brands that everybody wants to have in the country were our clients. And then WeWork came in with $100 million of capital and basically dumped their product in the market and destroyed my business. And, you know, I've caught up with the hearts and we've had a conversation. I said, look, you know, you, you did an equity play. Um, I'm not aggrieved about it. It's, uh, it. That's how markets work. But it was no different than dumping product. You know, if it was grain, it was we're going to actually become the, the grain supplier in the world because we're dumping our grain at an unsustainable price. We'll take, take out the, the grain farmers. The World Trade Organization has rules against that. We don't see that sort of deployment of capital to gain market share as being inappropriate when it's a tech company. And so in some ways we're holding back innovation 
because we're following where the capital is going rather than where the innovation is. And what I hope that I'm able to go do as we're having conversations and that we're doing the awards is to shine a spotlight on the best innovation and also the way that we get to that better future faster. You know, they're two very key things for me because, pardon me, innovation doesn't happen at the largest market cap company. It normally happens at the smallest market cap company. And innovation can't happen at speed either, uh, truly, because because um, to, to in order to move that quickly, in order to grow that fast, you can't have a product that requires um, somebody getting familiar and getting comfortable. The investment space is a very interesting space to, to experience this problem. So is healthcare. Um, and so you have to question what a, a super fast track you know, growth environment is in certain businesses. Is it really the right uh, mechanism for, for that type of a business to grow successfully? Because you, over time, if you have to index against the growth needs of a venture of a venture backing, you may have to decrease the actual value of the products and services that you offer your customers, or do you know things to completely reduce the friction of the usability of the product, such that it's actually damaging for the people who are using it. So we've gone past the point of just not adding value to the point of actually, you know ruining lives in some cases um, by creating addiction and, and creating, um, I mean, the massive disinformation campaigns that are a result of uh, the, the Facebook revenue model. And, and here we are, all of us designers, we came in and we just wanted to, we just wanted to make a nice thing for people to use and connect people, uh, people's grandparents with their grandbabies. Um, and I think another feature of this community is, is a lot of us feeling a bit duped, frankly, you know, and a bit chewed up by an industry that made us feel like this was a place for us to exercise our idealism when it when it really was more about, you know, creating shareholder wealth. Yeah. And so I suppose there's the, the philosophical dilemma about is the person who makes the knife that the chef uses, you know, they've made something which is wonderful. But what happens when they find out that that knife was now used by a serial killer? Okay, it's a, and then you get people who go make things which are like uh, hunting rifles, and then they find out, oh gosh, my hunting rifle was bought by teenage boys and then was used in a school a school massacre. We go, well, there there wasn't the chef part about making the nice food with the rifle. You know, it's like this thing may have actually been questionable from the beginning. <laughs> so I think there's, it's how do we look at our framing and when you became aware that you might have been doing something that didn't match your values and your purpose, what did you do about it? That's, that's, the, that's the personal conundrum. It's not did I happen to be doing things which may not have been aligned with what I was about. Because opportunities in the industry become such that you continue to optimize the knife for the serial killer and not the chef. <laughs> It's like, it's like if you're slashing 15 people, you won't lose grip of this. Yeah, okay. And we, so the moment you put that it's gonna on bloody, the It's going to be messy. <laughs> we have a new line of products. It's a blood poncho. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so we know we're on the wrong path there. Okay. But I want to go into a really interesting thing there about, about the standard that we walk past is a standard that we accept. So... You obviously have some people who are in your in your realm who have 
accidentally walked into a cross-purpose when it comes that they thought they were making a new like button. What they didn't realise, they were creating this dopamine tool that was then affecting and destroying people's lives. If they didn't speak up, if they were complicit and they were compliant about, about that, then that's hard. But it's when they decide maybe we should actually either stop making like button improvements or maybe we should stop, you know, we see something that's wrong, we should actually speak up about it. That's a very courageous thing to do, isn't it? And it's an opportunity for us as I think a community who who really does value and are deeply curious about people. I think the the most consistent thing about designers is that we really do just we're very curious about connecting people together. Brand designers love to create beautiful messages that tell interesting stories that give you goosebumps if they do it right. User experience designers want to create flows that feel more like conversations than they feel like clicking through screens. Um, and we do it by understanding uh, people. And so then there, there becomes a question, if we're able to create change in those environments, is there an opportunity for us to take our skill set as excellent facilitators, as excellent listeners, as excellent positioners to bring the insights forward in such a way that our leadership teams even in large organizations, um, have an opportunity to listen and also to bring, like I think you and I were talking about this before the call, but it's the me versus we. So exactly. instead of bringing um, myself forward, bringing, or bring, going forward and breaking through, um, bringing everyone with me and creating a space where it feels comfortable and safe for all of us to say, like, yeah, this, this doesn't feel like it's... Overall, we have to think about the consequences of our actions writ large. We can't just clock in and clock out. And as a group, we have decided that we would like for our company to be, you know, doing things differently. Google tried, had a group that's trying to unionize. I think it's a very interesting um, uh, pathway. You know, I talked to my husband about it. He, he wouldn't be quite so positive about it. But um is is there a chance for us as a design community to be to be um a partner to business in these moments to add information and context and humanity to decisions that otherwise can lean far too much on the increased value of the stock and not the increased value of the life. Yeah, and I think unions are very interesting if you get down to the functional part of what a union did and why they became popular. Unions had a rise because people were having to go and pay backhanders to go get work, that it was actually day work that was being allocated to them and that there was graft and corruption. They were on very poor pay and they also had very poor conditions where people were dying in the workplace and getting injured in the workplace. Yeah. So it's a, it's a pretty easy proposition to say, yeah, join us and we'll actually tell the bosses they shouldn't be killing so many of you and join us and we'll make sure that you actually get a thing called a job, not just today's work. So they, that was basically the original product offering. That was like the minimal viable product. And I know Brian Collins is going to hate me for saying that. That was the MVP. And then, But what's interesting, the MVP was fantastic. The MVP was simple, elegant and efficient. And then... For a whole range of reasons, they then had to change what the product offering was because they had to keep membership, which was revenue. And so we get into this nefarious loop of how do we go keep our customers? And then they began to 
well, there weren't as many people dying because workplace laws changed and then there was uh, governments that brought in minimum standards on wages because they found they could get elected if they do that, whereas that used not be the case. And so you're saying like, well, there's not only one provider of a safe workplace and great wages now, there's actually other providers. And I think if I went and looked at somebody like a Google and a Facebook, on, on a whole, they're actually safe workplaces that have great remuneration, okay? So saying, gee, well, what are we going to talk about now, moral issues? Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've, I've never heard that unions were great devices for solving moral dilemmas and philosophical dilemmas. And Absolutely. so that would be very difficult to work out how to apply a tool that was useful for wages, conditions, work, and then try to use it against moral dilemmas. But I think that maybe there's another another facet to tech tech work and knowledge work in general around why we're hearing so much about burnout. Mm-hmm. And now that work is at home and the boundaries between when you're working and when you're not working, especially when you're a creative, curious person who really likes what you do for a living, are so unclear. And I, I had a friend of mine, and this was actually the start of this group. She she told me she works at a big tech organization. And as soon as she wasn't able to have her kid in daycare until seven o'clock, I'm off the track. I'm off the promotion track. I can't get promoted by working 40 hours a week. It's not enough. So what do I do now? Yep. And this was the big break for a lot of us where we realized we've been putting a lot of energy and effort into a machine that wasn't feeding us back. It was just asking for more and more and more of our time, which is the only thing that we don't get to have more of. Um, and, well, actually, there's two things that you can't get. I'll, I'll, I'll add one more there. Health. Yes. So you can't you can't buy time and you can't buy health. So they're kind of the, they're the, the most interesting things. You know, if you've got... Um, an underlying prevalence for a condition because of your DNA, you better focus on that because mm-hmm. that doing anything to not fall into that being activated is is a life mission because otherwise it's death. Yeah. Yes. And you go, okay, so we've got something we, we really need to look at. But, it, you know, it's, it's the pursuit of who said that we all have to go and keep doing the promotions. So there's people who actually do sport for... Recreation. They do competitive sport for recreation. Not everybody wants to be the player who hits the you know the series winning um, run in the World Series, you know, or the gold medal. There's people who say, "Look, I'm competitive, but I think competing at a club level is enough for me, or a regional level. I don't need to be at the Pan Galactics and then be you know <laughs> be the best in the Pan Galactics. And don't worry, they'll come. You know, aliens will eventually get here. Elon's we're going to bring them back on his rocket ships. That's what that's about. <laughs> um, so, so I think there, you know, there's this. It, it's about values, and it's also you know to what end. So doing all of that work, to what end? Um, I, we did a town hall in the UK yesterday with the next generation, and one of the guys who was on the call, is a, he's a designer who is also a musician, and every time I talk, to, talk with him, I remind him that he's actually a mus- musician in his soul and he's a designer in his wallet. You know, so, and he's going, yeah, that's kind of right. I don't get paid enough to be a jazz musician all the time. But I know on his deathbed he's going to talk about the gigs he missed going to or the gigs that he remembers. He's not going to talk about the product that he designed. Okay? So so in the to what end, 
I'm going to be, I'll be boring people when I'm retired about my sailing, not about the, the fantastic 2021 New York Design Awards that we ran. You know, it's like that, that it, it's a, it, it has purpose and there's a reason that we do it, but it's not my life's meaning. And so the to what end is the important part. The, your, it sounds like your group has actually got to, and you're going to hate when I say this, it's like a middle-aged realisation that there may be other values that are there. And I'm sorry, I've just middle-aged you. Yeah. You're no, 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 out. you're not wrong, though. I did Google the other day midlife crisis. Um, <laughs> so don't don't feel it. But you're right. And, and maybe it's just it's just our generation and we're finally hitting it and um, and moving through it and deciding what to do with all of that effort and energy that built a lot of pretty destructive things um, and try and reinvest it in other ways. And, and I do think that there's also, and I'm excited to talk with, um, some Gen Z folks next week in our U S town hall around this, because I think that they, um, they are seeing it a lot more transparently than, uh, than our generation did and are already looking to advocate for, um, a full life, over a fiscally successful life. And they have some other questions too about like, why is it so hard to earn um, enough money to have enough to eat uh, at the end of the day? You know, why why are we asking? And there was a great piece in the Wall Street Journal the other day that was kind of comparing the minimum wage in the US, which is still, I think $8. And it's been that way for many, many years. And what you could buy 10 years ago or 15 years ago with that money versus what you can buy now and actually equating it to hours, which I thought was really, really brilliant. So it was talking about how many hours it would take you to work to pay your rent on that minimum wage versus how many hours. And you just realize over time, you just run out of hours, yeah. you know. Um, and and hours to acquire has, is a really good universal standard because it gets rid of price point. It actually goes to, it's a relation there. And, uh, and I know for, for young people in Australia, the hours that they have to work to buy a car has actually decreased dramatically. The hours they have to work to own a home has gone through the roof. And so we've now got the property ownership is actually a far dream, yet car ownership is actually disposable. And you're going, that doesn't make sense. You know, and so, and, and so it's really important that we help people to understand that they have a changed circumstance. And that's a, that's a communication matter there. So I'll be interested to see because, you know, some of the things that you've come up with are, you know, you've got this community of professional women who are trying to find more purpose. Awesome. You know, it's a, the could versus should is coming into that frame. Yeah. We've got the me versus we in the how do, you, how do you move to that better future, the addition rather than the extraction, yeah. And then you've also got this longitudinal, do we bring everybody along or do I break through? And so one of them is that, like all of these things are about a community of how do we actually bring our community together. And the unity series that we did for, uh, for the town halls, Particularly the UK one, they, the UK is in a particular model where at the moment where because of Brexit, they've kind of destroyed other elements of their economy. It's not just COVID that's actually causing challenges. So you've got a moribund national government that's not working. And so it's actually, okay, we need to go local. We need to work out how do the people in Brighton support the people in Brighton and that we've got 
trade and commerce going there, but they're actually getting to this lovely thing, which is hyper-local. And to go quote, uh, quote Paul Prusman, who we've done a recent spotlight with, it's like he used to design the fastest things on the planet, Hyperloop, tra uh, uh, um, uh, transport technologies capsules, the um, aeroplanes that are going uh, A300s and that sort of stuff. And he's going, well, really, what's the rush? This is a guy who used to design the fastest things. He's saying, what's the rush? And the idea of going from a range of we all thought we had to move an hour to go get something down into half an hour, down into 15 minutes. In Stockholm, they're trying to get to the one-minute city that everything you need is actually right where you are. And I think that's such an important reflection about changing our values. Um, Harry West was reflecting on the idea that if the same amount of infrastructure had been invested in hyper-local that was actually put into the interstate road network, what would the shape of America look like? Go on. Now that's interesting. You know, there's, there's there was an investment, whether it was in industry to get things out of a neighbourhood, or if it was about travel and tourism, get you out of the neighbourhood. What happens when when we invest to keep you in the neighbourhood that we keep you close and local? And that sounds what your community is doing there is working out how to actually build that common unity. Melissa, I've loved sharing your brain. It's great chat. Loved it. Now. Is there anything that I've skipped over and that you're saying, I don't want to leave the call until you've until we've covered this? <laughs> well, I'm really excited to share the super, uh, I think, super cool. And if you could see all of their bios, I think you would agree. Group of uh, Collective of Women is going to be coming out with a newsletter a little bit later this year, um, featuring different personal stories on what it means when you're living life off the track and um, different ways to kind of, you know, bring, bring a more whole, uh, more whole life home. Um, so be excited to share that with, uh, with your and, and I'll be really interested to see if you've been able to define what the track is, because if you're going to be off the track, we have to know what the track is. So, so I'm going to be interested to see that part as well, because I reckon that co-authoring what off the track means could be its own, you know, it's almost like ending the band when we had to go around the bio of the band. Yeah. So chorus and not a and not a solo. I'll say that. <laughs> That's fantastic. Melissa, always I love getting access to your mind and being able to go share it with people. And certainly if people are focusing on how to go build their community and understand their values and their purpose, they're likely to go get to that better future faster and enable others to do it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me.